I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Tim Bousquet, editor of the Halifax Examiner, joining us from Halifax. How you doing? Hi, Jesse. It's good to see you. Today on the show, Tim, burn it down. No, not like that. It is wildfire season again, and uh, nobody is quite sure how to talk about it. Also... Press 2 if you are embarrassed by Quebec's new language laws. Welcome to Shortcuts, Tim, where we talk shit about the news. Good to be here. This episode is brought to everybody by Ben Coleman, Eric Bodendorfer, Ryan Olin, Mark Willis, Paul Levoy, Annabelle Foss, Melanie Kells, and Jonathan. Hey, I'm Jonathan, a software developer from Kitchener, Ontario. I support Canada Land because it exposed the dirty underbelly of the myth of Canada that I was raised to believe, and because it pulled the rug out from under the cult of Craig Kielberger. The network has taught me how the news is made and how to be critical of what I read, and has introduced me to some of my favorite journalists. Thanks, Canada Land! Menacing plumes and relentless flames. So far, Canada's worst spring wildfire season to date. Fumes are inescapable. The Barrington Lake wildfire, the largest in Nova Scotia's history, continues to burn out of control. Wildfires are raging across the country and Quebec appears to be seeing the worst of it. Now in Ontario, officials are closely monitoring a number of active fires. On the West Coast, seven new fires are burning in B.C. This is a scary time for a lot of people not just in Alberta, but right across the country. 
All right, that's what it sounds like on the news. We could have put that sound pack together last year. It feels like this is just like an annual event every summer now. You could kind of like almost play this game of like, what would it take to get the federal government or to get like people like me in Toronto to care about this? Like, would we have to actually smell the fire burning around us from the West and the East? Tim, I can. Toronto smells like a bag of hickory sticks. This is like frightening stuff. Like I feel surrounded. I know it's not about me and my like distressed nostrils. It's the largest wildfire in Nova Scotia history. You're covering this? Yeah, there's, there's actually been five wildfires here. The two of biggest concern are that Barrington Lake fire, which is down in the southwestern end of the province. And it is by itself the largest fire that's ever in recorded history in Nova Scotia. 25,000 hectares. And there's also was a very large fire, 950 hectares in the western suburbs of Halifax called the Tantown Fire. That involved the evacuation of 16,000 people and 150 houses burned down. You know, usually when it comes to natural disaster, that's clearly in the wheelhouse of like action news, six o'clock news. That's the stuff where they tend to be there first with their satellite trucks and indie operations like us might take a back seat. You're all over this. Can you tell me what added value, what you're covering, you know, that you feel the others are not, where you feel like there are holes in the coverage and, and like, what is the role of the press? Because it's like it's so easy just to like what plays big is just like the most disturbing footage or photographs. Yeah. Well, I'll back up a bit and say that before I moved to Canada, I was a reporter in California. And that necessarily entailed a lot of uh, reporting on fires. And for a while, that that was my main gig, reporting on fires. So I know an awful lot about fires. I moved to very wet Nova Scotia, you know, complain that it rains all the time. But in the last few years have been especially dry. This year, we had four straight months of very dry weather before this fire hit. And it was last Sunday in May, the 28th, when the fires were happening out in this urban wildland area. And I knew immediately this was a really big deal. This was unprecedented from my California experience. So I covered it through that lens. Since then, I I think that the day-to-day what's happening reporting of the media has been pretty good. CBC and CTV and Global and the Saltwire have been doing a good job of doing the blow-by-blow. Here's what the fire response is. Here's where the fire is. Here's where evacuees have to be taken. Here's how you get help. Let's listen into this press conference like that. Really cannot fault local media on that. What I think has been lacking from the get-go has been some context around this reporting. So, I mean, obviously, the largest context is climate change. And I'm not seeing a lot of reporting embedded in that context, you know. Beyond that, there's there's local specifics that, you know, these are issues everywhere, but there's always a local context to it. We've had an awful lot of development in these western suburbs, you know, for a few decades. And 100 house neighborhoods or 200 house neighborhoods being dropped in in this, this woodland, large lots, maybe maybe one road going into the the neighborhood. In one case, there's a, a neighborhood that has 482 houses in the neighborhood, and there's only one exit route. Uh-huh. And thankfully, the fire didn't reach that neighborhood, but had it, it could have been beyond terrible. But all through this area, that's how they were. And these neighborhoods were built without fire hydrants. 
without even dry hydrants, the, the hookups to the, the lakes that the fire department can make use of. There are neighborhoods with hundreds of houses that are in the woods that have only one path in and out and no fire hydrants? That's right. And lots of those neighborhoods, Jesse. The area that was evacuated stretched, I don't know the exact length, but probably around 10 kilometers long. And that entire corridor could be described as exactly that. Uh, Neighborhoods with 100 to 500 houses accessed by one route, maybe two sometimes, with no fire hydrants. We're also getting tips from people in Nova Scotia, Tim, that are like, the premier's lying, like very paranoid, angry sounding stuff. I understand people are in distress and accusing the government of all kinds of things and saying, well, like, like they're telling people they can't go to their homes, but they're letting private industry work nights uh, on these sites that are supposedly too dangerous and uh, under conditions where like private industry could, you know, easily spark another fire. You know, then I go Googling to see if there's any documentation of this. Can't find anything. Is that something you know anything about? Yeah, it's true. Now, the wildland fire in the southwest is in a a timber area. The fire here in the Halifax area is not uh, heavily timbered. There there are a few woodlots there, but not to a large extent. But when the fire happened, the burn ban, which was already in place, was put in place province-wide. Exempted were, were timber operations between the hours of, I think it was 8 p.m. and, and 10 a.m., so they could operate. And and yes, you, the, your informants are correct. That's a dangerous business. Uh, fires start all the time from, from logging operations. But the economic impact of the industry and the, the pull of the industry was such that they got this exemption that they could operate in the cooler overnight and early morning hours. The most frequent complaint about wildfire coverage that we've heard from people is like, the climate context is missing. The climate change context is missing. And I always feel like, first of all, I hope that everybody reads this stuff under the context in, you know, reasonable people's minds that this is all happening in a world that is affected by climate change. And this is obviously related to climate change. And what would that like opening graph be? Like you could almost have an algorithm just insert it. Like, you know, wildfire season is back and it is likely an effect of, of climate, you know, the, the increase, you could come up with some boilerplate legalese because it's both completely obvious, but also hard from a news perspective to say, you can't say this particular wildfire is a direct result of climate change. But the preponderance, the, the, the frequency of, of these fires and how extreme they're getting is quite obviously such. And if you could almost like put that boilerplate at the beginning of every article, you're covered there. I don't know how much information we have to impart to people that they don't already know unless they've taken a firm ideological stand of ignorance. I suppose. You know, we never had fires like this before. And every fire starts somehow. And fire that started 10 years ago in the exact same spot where this one started at the end of May would not have had this level of destruction. The destruction is there because the the forest was dry and ready to go. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not as obvious as I think trending right now. I'll read a, a tweet from the Nova Scotia RCMP. The information in this article is incorrect. The arsons in Pictou County were extinguished and did not lead to any wildfires. So what is that in reference to? Somebody is trying to spread fake news that the RCMP blames wildfires on arson, that this is man-made, this is like arsonists did this, it's not climate change is the implication. Tim, for 100 points, what was the news source spreading that, that misinformation? 
I'm going to guess one of those far right. Uh... Yeah, it, it's rebel news. And there's so much conversation about, you know, misinformation and disinformation. We need policy. We need funding. We need, you know, we need to do something about. And my, I'm always like, I don't know who you're talking about. Like there's like, there's really only one commercialized source. You know, there's a lot of like highly politicized spin from a few different small outlets. But if there's something that's like really consequential and fake, like just a fake thing that no, don't blame this on climate change. A few people are to blame for these wildfires and the RCMP are attributing this to arsonists. That's coming from Rebel News. Well, you know, to be clear, every fire has a cause. None of the fires that have started in Nova Scotia this year were natural. That is, none of them started from a lightning strike. In my years of covering fires in, in California, I've seen fires start, someone mowing their lawn and the, the blade hits a rock. Someone parking on dry grass. Just the most innocent human actions can start a fire. Mm -hmm. We don't yet have conclusive proof for what started these these fires, but it doesn't matter because humans are humans and humans will start fire. What matters is, first of all, how quickly and how far ranging will those fires spread? And secondly, are you prepared for them? And in these cases here, as I say, it doesn't matter how the fire started. If it had started in the same place a long time ago, it wouldn't have been an issue. Because we built these neighborhoods around them, because we're not prepared for fire, because the climate is drier, disaster happened. Yeah, no, I take your point. Even if the RCMP attributed the, the cause to ar arsonists, it wouldn't matter because, you know, those fires are, are of a different scale entirely right. because right, of the conditions. It. But actually, the RCMP had to correct and say, in this particular case, even that's not true. You know, I think you're right. Like, what do people need to talk about and know about when this happens? I think, you know, certainly climate change, but like when the fire is like in your community, you need that immediate information about, you know, safety and uh, evacuations. And then I think, I think that if you're a little bit removed from it, maybe this is the conversation to have after the immediate danger is over. Yeah. Are we like, this is the new reality. This is every summer. So are we, are we developing housing with this in mind? Are our communities being built with a likelihood, the certainty that this is going to happen every season? Is that being considered? Those sound like the right questions. Like, I don't know. What else do you say? I did an article about firefighters. The fire department had many years ago, said they were opposed to certain developments because there weren't, wasn't enough water and firefighting infrastructure in them. And their, their concerns were just ignored and the development went ahead anyway. Those are the kinds of issues that we're trying to dive into here. I'm told repeatedly by the people who responded to the fires that water wasn't an issue in fighting it. I don't know that I trust that judgment because I see evidence on the ground that suggests otherwise, and I hope to further investigate that and, and detail that in coming days and weeks. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. What do you think that people in the rest of the country need to be talking about or aware of? And like, you know, like here, you know, you're speaking from a Nova Scotia perspective, but I think probably there's going to be the same things that people in Quebec and in British Columbia and parts of Ontario. There's going to be a desire for this to be considered a national problem and not like a, a local regional or a non-urban problem. This can't be ignored, right? So wh where does our focus need to be? Well, I mean, it's, it's both national, international, and local. So, you know, before I moved here, I, I lived in Chico, California. And a few years ago, the town of Paradise burned down next town up the thing, largest destruction in California history. And I had dozens of 
people I know, friends, lost their homes in that. So there's some irony coming, you know, another country in a way and, and seeing the same thing happen here. It can happen everywhere as a result of all these contributing factors, you know, the, the climate change, the lack of firefighting resources and planning. But I, I do think that there's always a particular local aspect to it, dimension to it, that needs to be looked at locally. So the way we build our subdivisions here will have some commonalities with what happens in Alberta or Ontario, but there are specifics and specific actions that can be taken or were not taken, can be taken in the future. And those are for the local reporters on the ground to get into. This episode is brought to everybody by Article. Tim, do you spend a lot of time outdoors when it's nice enough to do so? In the six weeks out of the year that it's nice here in Nova Scotia, yes. Got to make the best of it. Got to make the best of it. I am out back a lot on the patio. I am glad to have like a whole like living room set up uh, and it's all article stuff. And it's like, I'm on year two with this stuff and it's just like sturdy, stylish, looks good. Even the next year I had such an easy time shopping and buying. It arrives and you're like happy that it looks even better than you thought it was going to. It's affordable. There's no like brick and mortar stores. So you're getting like very stylish looking stuff for a lot less than you thought. Outdoor couches, chairs, sofas, and more pretty swanky outdoor lighting as well. Article is offering listeners of this podcast $50 off of the first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash CanadaLand and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. Once again, that's article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Tim, I'm going to abuse our duly noted segment. It is intended to give more attention to news stories that deserve more attention, but I'm going to put some attention on our own uh, announcement that I think deserves more attention. For the first time ever, Canada Land is putting out an open call for pitches for new podcast series. We're really excited about this. People out there might know Radiotopia or Ear Hustle. Those are both projects of a wonderful creator named Julie Shapiro, and she's working with us to develop this new slate of series. So uh, we are looking for original podcast ideas, something different, stories that really need to be told. We're sending out this call to journalists, audio producers, writers, comedians, anybody who might have an incredible story to tell and the skills to tell it. Anybody who has a great idea for a new podcast series. So I'm spreading the word. If that's you, if that's somebody you know. Oh, Jesse, I have a podcast pitch for you. You got one? You want to do it now? No, I don't want to do it now because it's so damn good that people need to to see it coming from left field. All right. Uh, I'm going to tell you where to go. I want to hear this pitch, Tim. Go to canadaland.com slash pitch us your podcast hyphen in between those words, pitch us your podcast. Once again, canadaland.com slash pitch us your podcast to learn more and submit your pitch. We are reading all of these pitches with great interest. We're getting back to everybody who sends us pitches. We are going to be making a whole bunch of new series. So come check it out. Duly noted. Tim, what have you to duly note? I want to note a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. It's produced by Paris Marks and he lives in St. John's, Newfoundland. Oh yeah. And he just interviews people every week. Sort of like you do, but it's about the tech industry and the, the failures and downfalls of the tech industry. He's not a Luddite. He's not an anti-tech. He's anti-tech industry. So, you know, there, there's been a couple of shows just representative. One recently was on how cities try to attract the big tech companies to revitalize themselves and how it's almost always a failure. 
And it leaves the people who actually live in the city worse off than before the pitch was made. Another one is about the Saudi Arabia and other despotic regimes, how they have these big mega project architectural dreams, you know, the the hundred mile long linear city, that sort of thing. And they're all bullshit. And and yet (laughs) at the same time, they get all these architects fawn over them and, and, and get into it. The point of the show is just to show how warped the reporting is around big tech and how the reporting itself has become part of the grift of the rest of us. And so I highly recommend Tech Won't Save Us by Paris Marx. You know, I follow Paris Marx on Twitter. I thought that they had a great comment in response to this new Apple announcement, you know, that like, I forget, you know, to, to paraphrase what was said. Yeah, it looks cool. I don't even think Paris Marx said that. I thought it looked cool. But I thought like, who is asking for this augmented reality thing that like is really imposing upon us an entire new way to live, to work, to relate to each other that nobody asked for. And I think Paris Marx said something like, we do not have to accept this. We don't have to accept that we are going to like live in this world where we are monetized by Apple to their purposes and and, and around their specifications. And I thought, oh, this Paris Marx has something to say. So I didn't know about the podcast. I'm going to check that out. Well, there's all these things, right? You know, the blood tests, it was uh, self-driving cars, crypto, AI, you name it. It's just one big thing after another that's just accepted credulously by the reporters. And and no one looks at the whether, first of all, it's real. And secondly, what the social implications of it are. I was a tech reporter for many years and I, I was interested in, in the issues, you know, and the policy. And it was really an uphill battle because like people want to hear about the next cool shit. People want to hear about the company to uh, buy stock in. People want to hear about like multi-billion dollar exits. People want to hear about gadgets. It's hard to say like, do we need this? Is this bullshit? Is it real? Will it help us? Is it good? You're, you're, you're really bumming people out, but th- those obviously were the right questions to ask and, and they still are. All right. Duly noted. And a great tie in to my next duly noted here, which I, I basically there's a backlash to something called the collision tech conference in Toronto. And I would like to gleefully join this backlash. Uh, it's been going on for some years now. And I first learned about them when they, uh, some years ago, emailed me, the publicist, you get these emails, hey, there's this big world-class tech conference, we're based in Ireland, but we're, but Toronto, lucky you, we're, we're coming out to Toronto. And look at who is there. Do you want, like, accreditation? We'll give you free passes to this conference, and look who's available for interviews. Do you want to interview any of these people? And then I looked at the list, and I'm like, well, holy shit, it was like the CEO of Twitter. I'm like, Really? Like the CEO of Twitter is available for interviews with Canada Land? That sounds unlikely to me. But yeah, like I'll, 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 I'll find something to talk about with the CEO of Twitter. And there are two other names. I was like, yeah, like I uh, absolutely, you know, uh, we'll take the free passes and please get me those interviews. And then I didn't hear anything until somebody alerted me to the fact that on the Collision website, in the part where they market this conference to vendors and people who have to buy tickets for a lot of money, they said... Come to this collision conference. You will be covered by media, including Canada Land. And they had our logo up there. I think they might have even called us a media partner. I can't remember exactly. But I was like, what the? Like, this is a racket, man. Like, they woo you in. And I guess that by agreeing to go cover it or take their press pass, 
I have also agreed for them to market their conference with att- like like attention from my media organization, and they're going to go sell their products. Like, so I told everybody here, do not accept anything from these people. This is this is sketchy as heck. And now I read a couple of things. I read in the Globe and Mail uh, editorial from a guy named Philippe Tellio, runs a rival conference, a Canadian conference called Startup Fest. And what he wrote was that, like, this collision conference, they get millions of dollars from Canadian governments, and they're a bad actor. They're competing against local conferences. We're more than able to have our own conferences, and they're asking for $40 million, and they burn through cities. Collision's been in Vegas. They've been in New Orleans. They've got this other event that ditched Dublin for Lisbon. Like, they, they basically go around the world seeing which local government will give them more money according to Philippe Tellio. And this is basically a cry from the heart that we should stop giving the money. We shouldn't give them the $40 million they're asking for. And then I read David Scott, who's the publisher of The Logic. He's been covering, you know, his news organization, they cover the technology and business. They've been covering the Collision Fest, but they got booted. They got booted and they got booted because they have a bunch of events, like they got like a dozen events a year for their subscribers. We do this too. We have events for our subscribers, right? So they had an event. It, It wasn't even at the same time as Collision, but they got an email from Collision and it said, it's come to our attention that you're organizing an event in Toronto piggybacking collision. (laughs) Running other events that piggyback ours is not something we support. We won't be having anyone from the Logic speak at this or any future web summit or collision events. And then they said that they have rejected the Logic's newsroom request for accreditation. So Logic's reporters were booted out from even covering the conference. So this group is going around and getting government money to put on big, what are they, like uh, We Day for the tech industry? It's funny you should mention because guess who goes to these events and poses with the CEOs as a big champion? No, no. Justin Trudeau. If you are like any of these Canadian businesses, whether you are the logic doing your thing or whether you are this other tech conference, and BetaKit, I think, did a lot of the good uh, reporting uncovering this. But it's a good photo op for, you know, John Tory was supportive of this when he was mayor and Trudeau goes and co-signs this and does photo ops because they get to pose with the big leaders in tech. And back before there was a big tech backlash, it was a really good look to look like you're down with the biggest tech people in the world. Meanwhile, you're doing so at the expense of our local, like, tech journalism and tech scene. Like, we can do this shit ourselves. Like, I remember the Mesh conference. We've had conferences, tech conferences in Canada for many years. We don't need this kind of predatory company to come in here. So I don't know. They caved and they they gave the logic back their press credentials. But I just was reading this after kind of privately feeling like, I wonder if these guys are sketchy. They seem sketchy as hell to me. And, and then reading these pieces, I thought like, I'm going <laughs> to talk about this finally. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Tim, if we lived in Montreal and we needed to uh, access some local, you know, municipal service and we dialed that 311 number to figure out how to do that, this is what we would hear. In accordance with the charter of the French language, we will be pleased to provide service in English. If you attest in good faith that you are covered by one of the following exceptions. If you are a person declared eligible to receive English education, if you are an indigenous person, If you are a recently arrived immigrant residing in Quebec for less than six months, if you are calling from outside of Quebec, or if you corresponded solely in English with the City of Montreal prior to May 13, 2021. If you attest in good faith, please press 2. Otherwise, please press 1. What? What? If If I attest in good faith that I am in one of those groups, then I can get English service... If I attest, it implied there is that if you if you lie about this, uh, they're going to come and lock you up. So what would that be if if I am a recently arrived immigrant residing in Quebec, but it's more than six months? If I've been in town for six months in a day, and I press two to get English service because maybe I don't speak French as well as I speak English, am I breaking the law? If I'm if I'm calling from outside of Quebec, then I can press two. It's so weird. If I corresponded solely in English with the city of Montreal prior to May 13th, 2021, that's what I'm thinking. If I'm an Anglo, I, I'm like, well, did I communicate only in English before May 13th? And I've got to figure that out right now in order to get my English service in good faith. You know, this is all about this new language law, parts of it coming into effect, Bill 96. And the leader of the Quebec Conservative Party said, we're becoming a laughingstock. This is humiliating. This is embarrassing. Now, I don't know if, you know, if you're the leader of the Conservatives in Quebec, you've got zero seats, if you can talk about laughingstocks. But I'm not going to say, like, I don't want to fall into traps of, of like Franco bashing or saying like, this is a joke or this is humiliating. But I think we can start at the, at the place of like, this is super weird, right? Like, I, I don't think that there's anywhere else in the world where you have to like, like press a button and promise that you're telling the truth that like, is is that not super weird? It is weird. And and it flies in the face of what uh, most progressive or even just 
slightly sane governments are trying to do around the world, which is extend your services as far as you can to to people outside of the mainstream. I mean, we here in Nova Scotia, our government, uh, all the press releases, everything are, are bilingual in French, and sometimes even in Mi'kma'ki. You know, for God's sake, there's Gaelic street signs. <laughs> <laughs> With the effort of reaching people who want English isn't their, their best or first language and um, getting services to them. We see this in the United States with Spanish in, in many, many states. You know, the, the idea is to be as inclusive as possible. So this this struck me as really, I don't know much about Quebec, despite my family background, but it strikes me that uh, uh, this is a culture that perceives itself as being on the defense. And, and that in itself is regrettable, I think. This is the response from the city of Cote St. Luke, which is a majority Anglophone neighborhood. Uh, I had relatives there jokingly referred to themselves as Cote St. Juif or Cote St. Jew. I can make that joke. Others cannot. But this is what happened when you called the city of Cote St. Luke uh, last week. If you'd like service in English, press 2. Oh, and by the way, you don't need to show us your grade 3 report card or your family tree going back 10 generations. And you don't have to think you promise anything. This is the city of Cote St. Luke. And that's how we roll. Well, good for them. It's hard to tell jokes when you're doing an uh, automated phone line uh, for municipal services. <laughs> well, there seems to be some quite serious aspects to this, though. I, I was reading through some of the material you sent me, and the, the health uh, side of it is particularly uh, worrisome. I worry that when there are sort of authoritarian tendencies or, or the desire to consolidate power— that governments look out for boogeymen, you know, for for the other to attack. And I, I wonder if that's playing into it in Quebec and in, in that, you know, does this strengthen the, the government's hand on all these kind of formerly more democratic processes that's now bringing closer to the vest uh, by kind of vilifying English speakers? Yeah, I mean... Look, I have tried to evolve over the years from, I think, a, a, a pretty one-sided perspective on this. And I really do, I really have come to understand and admire what has been achieved. It is very difficult in North America to preserve a language other than English and to preserve a culture other than English. And they've done that. And it's my favorite place in Canada. And I can't help but kind of admire that, I guess, is what I'm saying. But by the same token, there's like a personal part of this. Like the subtext of this is that some people are in and some people are out and some people are served and some people aren't. Like when, when these rules veer into cruelty, when I think about relatives of mine who are old, who, who need medical care more than uh, they ever have before and are engaging with the system more than they ever have before and what this introduces into the system of like, do they have to like make a special promise to get medical care in the language that they understand? What if somebody determines that they're not in good faith? Or what if they press the wrong button, you know? And then I think about new Canadians and just everybody who's harmed by this. And just like you say, like, this is so backwards. Everywhere else in the world, the point of the communication around municipal services, government services, is we want people to understand how to use this. We want them to use it. You know, they look at the numbers of like, you know, how many people aren't using it, who should be using it, how do we do reach out? Everything is organized around reducing the friction. And here, for this cultural protectionism, you are increasing friction in a way that is 
both practically going to impact people, but also there's a message. And, you know, the history of this is what I can't ignore, that, you know, there's like a profound part of Canadian Jewish history is in Montreal. You know, it's where my grandparents met. And Jews have been fleeing that province. And that community is like pretty much gone because like we have played this game before. And when there start to be laws that suggest that you are less of a citizen than other people, that's where like the very, the specifics don't matter so much as the message. And there was a mass migration 40 years ago and in successive waves, whenever this stuff flares up again, what a lot of people take from this is there's no future for me here. I am not equal here. And, you know, I think that that's something that other people are feeling just as much as um, Jews in the 80s felt in, in Quebec. And I, I, I like, I, I don't feel like I need to accommodate that or be sensitive about that. Like, I just feel like it's bigotry. You know, it's a little bit of an aside, but, you know, I, I went to university with this guy who's now known as Sugar Sammy, and he's now a big star and wildly successful stand-up comedian. And there's this editorial in Le Devoir by Jean-Francois Lisset in which he basically says, hey, I like political comedy just as much as the next guy. I've got a great sense of humor, but goes on to, to argue that Sugar Sammy has crossed the line and it's not funny. It's not funny the way that Sugar Sammy is uh, offending us francophones. And repeatedly in this piece, he refers to Sugar Sammy as uh, making fun of the francophones. Nora Loretto points out on Twitter, Sugar Sammy is a francophone. <laughs> By any reasonable measure of the word, but what he's not is white. That is a part of this. Like, uh, it, it, there's no ignoring that that is a part of this. And there's nothing that Sugar Sammy can do with certain people to be included in that group. Yeah, I, I don't know how to to put this conversation. It should be a national conversation on a, on a better foot. It does strike me that we in the Anglo-Canada don't do much in terms of participating in French culture. And I don't know what that would even look like, but I, it surprises me. They're producing a tremendous amount of, of cultural material in Quebec. And, um, you know, we should be aware of it and we're not. Well, we'll do what we can. And, you know, it's funny you should mention that, Tim, because if people are hearing this on Thursday, our first French live event in Montreal is happening tonight at the Phi Center in Montreal. That is June 8th at the Phi Center. Detour, come and hear Emily Nicola live. She will be having an intimate conversation with a couple of uh, special guest experts. And I think it's going to touch on some of the broader themes that we're talking about here. Uh, but yeah, this is Canada Land content in French in Montreal. Tickets are sold out, but there are a limited number available at the door that we've held back. So head to phi.ca, that's phi.ca, for more information about this event. Tim, we want to be a part of a bilingual conversation across Canada. And the fact that this event is sold out is encouraging for us. Sorry to put a plug in there, but it seemed like you set me up in a way that I could not ignore, Tim. Very good. That is Shortcuts. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Um, email me. I read everything that you send. Tim, where can people find you? I'm at Tim at HalifaxExaminer.ca and also on Twitter at Tim underscore Bousquet, which is B-O-U-S-Q-U-E-T. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. 
Once again, uh, we have an open call for podcast pitches. That's at canadaland.com slash pitch us your podcast. Hyphens in between each of those words. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. And by the way, you could also consider supporting the Halifax Examiner. If you want to support us, click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. 